0: Hello, and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 34 Free Men and the Thriving Cult of Greed and Power.
1: Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, The Simpsons and Modern History Together at Last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the U.S. You'll go where we go, cover what we covered, die in a bordello when we die in a bordello. <laughs> and today, I'm going to be talking about season two, episode twenty-one, Three Men in a Comic Book," which originally aired on May the ninth, nineteen ninety-one, a mere week after our last episode.
0: Mm. And as a distraction from the powers that be convincing the masses to act against their own interests, I'm going to be talking about Scientology. Time magazine published an expose of the religion entitled The Thriving Cult of Greed and Power on May 6th, 1991, just three days before free men and a comic book was first aired.
1: If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Friend of the podcast Phil Catterall, himself of the excellent podcast Don't Let's Chart with Ben and Phil, did just that. And in doing so, he pointed us towards the TV Tropes page, which is a wonderful resource in which I can often be found lost for hours. Somehow this one had escaped me, though, a trope called Flanderization. Mmm. It is described as the act of taking a single, often minor, action or trait of a character within a work and exaggerating it more and more over time until it completely consumes the character. And it's named for our Ned specifically because of the journey he takes across the 30-odd seasons of this show. In the episodes we're watching at the moment, he's a standard sitcom neighbour. Someone for the Simpsons to interact with, keep up with, and feel jealous of. He goes to church at this stage because that's what a morally good American father does. But eventually he becomes a devout, even extremist, Christian. And this becomes his only character trait. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating page, which I recommend you have a look at. Uh, there are explanations of how this applies to other notable Simpsons characters as well, such as Homer Simpson getting stupider every year. Um, but yeah, so give it a look if you're interested, and we're going to be discussing the Flanderization of characters as we notice it start to happen. Largely because that'll be nice as the character debuts taper off.
0: Mm. Indeed. Well, something else has happened this week that we're going to have to talk about, and it's something that historians will no doubt dwell over in years to come. So there was a general election in the UK on the 12th of December 2019, and the Conservative Party won it, getting a majority of 80 seats, which, as a left-wing, bleeding-heart liberal Ramona, is very, very depressing
1: incredibly depressing Mm -hmm.
0: yes so so Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast which I recommend if you're into American politics especially just put out something saying how are you Brits feeling about all of this and well Thomas we're feeling terrible I have to say so Brexit is now definitely going to happen We've got another five years of Tory rule and austerity to look forward to, so that's going to put the NHS in peril and people are going to carry on needing to use food banks and there's going to be a squeeze on people who uh, rely on the state for support, so Mm. people with disabilities and people who are on benefits, all that sort of thing. So it's very, very depressing. It cannot be overstated.
1: Uh, for any uh, non-British residents we have listening, how deeply austerity has cut in this country uh, under the under the Tory Party since 2010. Uh, another five years of it is, I think, believe I've used this word already, but it's frankly depressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not looking forward to it, and I'm not looking forward to it as a chronically ill person that relies on the NHS either. There is little bright in this part of the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, except ironically Christmas <laughs>
0: yes uh, yes so so you may notice that this episode is a week late that's because we're on our Christmas schedule so logistics are pretty tough at the moment uh, but hopefully this one sees you well mm. but before I start going on about how useless and incompetent the leader of the opposition Jeremy Corbyn is and getting extremely frustrated at the fact that he's yet to resign despite losing two general elections in a row, I think we'd better try and cheer ourselves up with a bit of The Simpsons, shall we? Absolutely.
1: Uh, although, if anyone's still listening after that last uh, last comment, <laughs> I'd be quite surprised. Uh, but yeah, right with you. Right there with you. So, Three Men and a Comic Book. It aired on May the 9th, 1991. I was about to say a brighter time, but there was a Tory government at that stage as well. Mm-hmm. yep. Uh, but, Gareth, I hear you cry. What was number one in the UK charts this week? Well... Still share. Ugh. But at number two, it's the KLF. Oh well, we've already done with KLF. You love the KLF. Which we... one which one which one is it then? So this is, this is my absolute favourite of theirs at the time, a track called Last Train to Transcentral. Um it's a huge booming stadium house version of said song. Uh, Which I didn't manage to get as a single at the time, which I found one disappointing day, one disappointing birthday in fact, uh, not to be the version on parent album The White Room. Although some years later I did get what I think is a Japanese import copy that had the good version on, so yay for internet shopping. Mm -hmm. But I did promise to enlighten you, Tom, and you, the listener, as to what happened next in the KLF story. Okay. So pull up a chair, because here we go. So... The KLF began to tire of mainstream success, and the music industry, and also came under pressure to provide a follow-up to their album, the aforementioned The White Room. They'll have one more massive hit in 1991, but we'll miss it. It's December's reworking of the White Room track Justified & Ancient, featuring a guest vocal from Tabby Wynette, and an elaborate Top of the Pops performance featuring people dressed as ice cream cones. <laughs> this too will go to number two. And all the sales will add up to the KLF being named the biggest-selling singles artist in the world for that year. So we're talking huge band, known for big on-stage extravaganzas, OK? Keep that in mind for what happens next. OK. On February 12th, 1992, the KLF would take to the stage at the Brit Awards as the opening act. For those unfamiliar with the Brit Awards, they're a back-slapping, cocaine fueled jolly hosted by the British phonographic industry to allow for industry fat cats to celebrate another year of strangling artistry in the music industry (laughs) and probably give best female to Annie Lennox whether or not she's released anything that year so the organisers were clearly expecting the performance to be something a bit like the aforementioned ice creams and popular guest vocalist affair that I just described what they got was this a thrash metal version of 3am eternal played by their special guests Crust Punk Legend's Extreme Noise Terror (laughs) with whom the KLF were collaborating on their eventually never released follow-up album The Black Room (laughs) with Bill Drummond on crutches and wearing a kilt shouting the rap at the top of his voice with a stage show that comprised of exactly one rotating police car style light (laughs) at the end of the performance Drummond fires blanks from a machine gun over the heads of the audience (laughs) Which is a step back from their original plan of throwing buckets of sheep's blood into the front rows, (laughs) having been dissuaded from doing so by extreme noise terror, who, would you believe, were fiercely anti-animal cruelty. Oh, well, yes. (laughs) As a compromise, Drummond dumped a dead sheep with a sign saying I died for you, bon appetit, tied onto it, outside the Brit's after party. (laughs) That's great. The whole thing went down really, really badly with the British photographic industry (laughs) and really, really well with anybody with a modicum of mischief in their blood.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. That's that's proper rebellious stuff, that is.
1: So Bill Drummond, who was reported to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown in the months before this performance, looks extremely pleased with himself afterwards. (laughs) Uh, And this next point might explain some of that. Uh, At the end of the performance, which I urge you to seek out, it's on YouTube and whatnot... Um, but this is largely drowned out by the incredibly piped in applause that they put over the top of the television broadcast. <laughs> the KLF's promoter Scott Peering proclaimed over the PA system that the KLF have now left the music business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a awesome
1: and three months later, they actually did, retiring the KLF and deleting their entire back catalogue on the 14th of May 1992. The statement they released upon their retirement said, If we meet further along, be prepared, our disguise may be complete. Mm. And you may remember that on August 23rd, 1994, the K Foundation, ostensibly Courty drum and Drummond in a different guise, hosted a piece of performance art called The K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. Oh, yes, that's fair, isn't it? And that sum was said to be the remainder of their profits from the KLF. Wow. But will we meet them again? And will their disguise be complete? I can't wait to find out. One last thing. Because the KLF left the music industry, they're not on
0: Spotify, as we found last time we did one of their tracks. Yes, that does explain why it's so hard to find KLF stuff. Because they're not on YouTube either. So what's going on our playlist instead?
1: Well, to make up for the lack of this absolute banger, we're getting two songs that illustrate the chart picture at the time, but that we would not otherwise get a chance to feature. From number four that week, it's... Zucaro featuring Paul Young with Sense Una Donna brackets without a woman close brackets. You look confused, but you'll know it when you when you hear it, I can assure you. I I usually do with most Paul Young songs, yeah. And slightly more pleasantly, from number ten, There's No Other Way by Blur. Oh nice.
0: Well that's an indie classic, yeah.
1: So I know that's breaking our rules on that, but when I looked at the top ten, it felt like adding those two would really round out our capsule of 1991 oh, yeah, music. Yeah. So Uh, I hope you agree with these substitutions, and if you don't, I don't care.
0: And if you're unfamiliar with There's No Other Way by Blur, you will recognise the introduction as one that goes, I used to dance my arse off to it at the waterfront in Norwich. It's good times. Very danceable, particularly for British indie. Mm -hmm. uh... Yep.
1: So we should probably actually come to the episode after Mm. the four hours we've already been going, um, (laughs) which had a US viewership uh, by Nielsen of 12.9, equivalent to around 12 million viewers, which is up on the previous weeks and brings them back up to being the most watched programme on Fox. And brace yourself, for the first week ever, they beat The Cosby Show to be the top programme in their time slot, full stop. Good. Good. The production number was 7F21, and the writer was Jeff Martin, as previously discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. The chalkboard gag is, I will not show off, written in lovely cursive. I'm told it's a font called Black Letter. Okay. But that's a continuity error of sorts, as Bart can't read cursive in season 8, episode 2, You Only Move Twice. Uh It's what gets him put in the Leg Up program. I mean, what are we supposed to believe? That he can write in a font he can't even read? <laughs> Boy, I hope someone got in and you know the rest of that. Yeah. The couch gag is the couch tips over backwards. The Simpsons are going to... The Comic Convention. Which I assume is separate to the BiMon Sci-Fi Com we'll see in <laughs> Season 10, Episode 9, Made to the Mob.
0: Yeah, that's one of my favourite names for anything ever, BiMon Sci-Fi Com. <laughs> <laughs>
1: On the way, they have a morbid, if convincing, conversation about the similarities between Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost. After a lovely early meta-joke where Lisa notes that Bart hasn't come dressed as a famous cartoon character, and Bart's failure to convince the organisers that Bartman is just as good, it's time for japes at the convention. (laughs) So we get Bart discussing Otto's frankly dismal attempt at his own comic, Bus (laughs) Man, and attending a showing of an old Laramie cigarette commercial starring his favourite superhero, Radioactive Man, and his young Ward, Fallout Boy, before tormenting the actor who played the latter with the lurid death of his opposite number, Dirk Richter, (laughs) whose ghost may or may not still haunt the bordello where his bullet-riddled body was found. (laughs) And then, he sees it. Comic Book Guy, as yet unnamed, is selling a copy of Radioactive Man number one for a hundred dollars. Bart only has $30, and Homer won't lend him the extra. Especially once he's discovered it wasn't drawn by Michael Melangelo. (laughs) And once he's also survived a repeating spot that I'd forgotten about entirely, where Bart asks for the money 11 times, and Homer wins the argument by asking Bart to stop bugging him a further 11 times. Bart needs money then, and Marge suggests a part-time job. So naturally, Bart decides to try some side hustles instead to avoid the effort cashing in his antique coins, recycling a bottle, and quickly graduating from a lemonade stand to an illegal beer stand, (laughs) including paying the cops to look the other way.
0: (laughs) Which is brilliant.
1: But Marge speaks to Mrs Glick at the hairdressers and gets Bart some odd jobs, which turn out to be hard labour in a thorny backyard, complete with iodine applied directly to Mm. his inevitable wounds. After a week, he leaves with the princely sum of... 50 cents. Done with work apparently forever, Bart goes forlornly to the permanent Androids dungeon, as opposed to the booth at the convention, and therefore where the comic now sits. He finds longtime nemesis Martin offering forty dollars for it, and quick as a flash, counters with an offer of thirty five dollars. <laughs> but by clubbing in with Millhouse, who has a similar amount of cash to buy a baseball card of Karl Yastrzemski with the big sideburns, that's Carl Yastrzemski, who's played his entire 23-year Major League career with the Boston Red Sox, and was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989. He is an 18-time All-Star, has seven gold gloves, is a member of the 3000-hit club, and has accumulated over 400 home runs. Good stats. In 1967, he led the Red Sox to the American League pennant for the first time in over two decades, was voted the American League MVP that season, and won the Triple Crown. Is that good?
0: That's very good. That's right. very good.
1: Because you're the baseball expert. Right? Uh, yes. I... Uh,
0: I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know what the Triple Crown is. I know what the American League is and the National League is, but I won't bore you with the details of the differences between them. Okay. But, but, but he was good then?
1: Oh, he, yeah. All of that is very, very good. Fantastic.
0: I'm just surprised I've never heard of him.
1: It was probably the sideburns. Yeah. <laughs> so, they can afford the comic, and without further thought, they buy it. That, by the way, happens like 15 minutes into the episode, which is much later than I pictured it. Mm. After reading it, and noting that being hit with an atom bomb would be more likely to kill someone than give them (laughs) wonderful powers, (laughs) they devise their ridiculously complicated system of sharing, which they probably should have done before buying the comic. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Bart will have it Mondays and Thursdays, Millhouse will get it Tuesdays and Fridays, and Martin, who is planning all of this... We'll take it Wednesdays and Saturdays, with Sunday possession to be determined by a random number generator, <laughs> assumedly a ten-sided dice. Note that this is a system that clearly benefits Martin, as he's the only one guaranteed a hold-on school day each week with the comic. Mm. Also, they, they float the idea of paper, stone, scissors. Best three out of five in paper, stone, scissors would be an absolute nightmare to score with three
0: competitors. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be really nerdy with a random number generator... There's this thing in probability theory called the central limit theorem, which says that with enough samples, things tend to be normally distributed. So in the numbers between 0 and 9, it's much more likely to end up in 5 over time than it is anything else. And you can try that with your calculator's random function if you want.
1: Ah. Because if
0: you grab the calculator... Hit random, it'll give you a number between 0 and 1. And if you do it enough times before you get completely bored, you will find that numbers appear around 0.5 more than they do around, say, 0.1 and 0.9.
1: Excellent. See, we even educate you. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic stuff. But you know, let's give the system time. It might work out, oh no, it immediately fails. <laughs> They each become paranoid that they'll be conned out of the comic by one or both of their partners, and all three agree to spend the night in the treehouse, watching over it. This winds up with Martin tied to a chair and Bart and Milhouse fighting, until Milhouse is thrown from the treehouse. At the same time, a gust of wind catches the comic, and blows it to the doorway. Bart can only save one, and in a decision he'll probably live to regret, he chooses Milhouse. (laughs) (laughs) The comic is blown from the doorway to the ground below Where it is savaged by Santa's little helper And fried by a bolt of lightning Bart provides consolation in the form of cocoa with imitation marshmallows And Bart somehow manages to realise that they lost everything Because they couldn't learn to share Without actually learning the lesson that sharing is important to do The end Another triumph
0: Yes, brilliant one that one now, this episode sees a brief appearance of Jolly Jack Tate. Now, I assumed that he was named after someone, and he sort of is. According to the Simpsons Wiki, he is named after Jack Kirby, who is a Marvel comic artist. And it just so happens that one of my favourite internet cartoonists, not that I've got that many, goes by the moniker of Jolly Jack so you want to check him out, his website's Collected Curios, and I've been following his sequential art comic strip, which is just called sequential art for donkey's years. So go and check that out, because he's really good. And he did a really good comic about Brexit recently, so yeah, check that out.
1: Are you ready for some character debuts? hmm Because there's a fair few here, and most notable amongst them is Jeff Albertson, better known as Comic Book Guy, mm-hmm. who is voiced by Hank Azaria... And got his full name in season sixteen, episode eight, Homer and Ned's Hail Mary pass.
0: Uh, well, a little while ago we did a quiz, didn't we? And that was the one question we didn't get: what's Comic Book Guy's full name? So now you're never going to forget that. Aren't you? I've already forgotten. What is it? What is it? Jeff. Jeff Al- Albertson. Jeff Albertson.
1: Yeah, we, we avenged ourselves in the next quiz uh, yes. by knowing that. But um, yeah. Now we've we've ruined our advantage for ourselves by telling everybody. (laughs) Um, So he's an instantly relatable, if blatantly uncomplimentary, caricature of comic book, video game, wargaming and occasionally bookstore workers who attempt to make their clientele feel really small and really stupid, despite being entirely reliant on them for their income. And absolutely have to be right about everything sci-fi, fantasy and comics related. It's a standard of customer service that us geeks take largely for granted, but it certainly shouldn't be. Mm. His catchphrase of worst episode ever came to prominence in Season 8, Episode 14, The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show. Easily in my top five episodes ever. That's brilliant. He would later use it in a fourth wall-breaking context in Season 11, Episode 13, Saddlesaw Galactica an episode believed by many to be the worst episode of The (laughs) Simpsons ever, at least until they killed Maud Flanders the following week. Uh, Spoilers, I suppose. Um, Since then, he's often been used as the writer's conscience, or at least as an excuse for poor segments or jokes, and especially repeated plots, by announcing them to the audience as if that makes up for them being there in the first place. He was also an early adopter of the internet, using it to find out star RM Pick in Season 7, Episode 2, Radioactive Man, apparently getting the answer from the artist then formerly known as Prince. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And also to ogle Kate Mulgrew in Season 9, Episode 14, Das Bus. There was a burgeoning and very vocal Simpsons fan community built up through early internet newsgroups like Alt.Simpsons and later message boards and forums such as NoHomers.net. And the writers and producers would often interact with and spy on the fans through these channels, either incognito or as themselves. Oh, very good. Comic Book Guy then became a way for them to lampoon these fans and downplay or preempt their criticisms. Which in some ways led them to the aforementioned Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie show. One thing that he isn't is stupid, at least by accepted measures. As said in this episode, he has a master's degree in folklore and mythology. But he's also said to have a degree in chemical engineering, and for what it's worth, an IQ of 170, making him a member of Springfield's local chapter of Mensa. And despite his awful people skills, and remaining a virgin well into his 40s, he hasn't done too badly with the ladies since. Romancing Agnes Skinner in season 12, episode 11, Worst Episode Ever, <laughs> And Edna Kraboppel in Season 15, Episode 17, My Big Fat Geek Wedding, before eventually marrying a Japanese manga artist called Kubiko Nakamura in Season 25, Episode 10, Married to the Blob. And they're still together. That's a thing. She still turns up in episodes, so fair dues for the continuity, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that episode's not bad, by the way. There's some fabulous animation in the pretty obvious but well-executed Studio Ghibli tribute. Oh, nice. And he runs the Androids Dungeon, which was presumably Springfield's only comic and collectible store, as that's the only explanation for why people keep going back there in the face of his customer service, (laughs) but has more recently faced competition from Coolsville Comics and Toys over the road, run by Milo, who was voiced by Jack Black and introduced in Season 19, Episode 7, Husbands and Knives. An episode featuring cameos from Comics Royalty, Alan Moore, Art Spiegelman and Daniel Close. Should probably pause here to take in my favourite moment from Comic Book Guy. And just for once, I can't remember the episode, but there's one where he's seen uh, pushing a wheelbarrow full of tacos, (laughs) saying, yes, this should provide adequate sustenance for the Doctor Who marathon.
0: Yes. Now, what is that one? That is,
1: That is. it's the one with Krusty... Gets busted, but it's not Krusty gets, no, it's Krusty gets Busted. It's the Krusty Tax one.
0: Yes, yes, yeah, it, it, it is one where Krusty uses Cayman Islands offshore holding corporation it's that, yes, and it's has that. possibly the best Custway character ever the, the, the British guy from the Cayman Islands. <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> I should have said he was a customer. Oh crap. <laughs> I should have said it was a speaker. Oh crap. <laughs> Just going, oh crap. Oh, yeah, it's that is so much fun. <laughs>
1: And there's also Mrs. Alice Glick, Mm. voiced here by Cloris Leachman, but later by Tress McNeil. Leachman is a multiple Emmy Award winning actor with a seven-decade career, still going strong at 93 years of age at the time of recording. She was in several Mel Brooks films and is the oldest contestant to date to have taken part in Dancing with the Stars. Mrs. Glick is an old lady who is called upon when old lady things are required. (laughs) Although I think the show tends to go to Agnes Skinner as their first stop these days. Her most memorable appearance will come at the rummage sale in Season 7, Episode 13, Two Bad Neighbours, selling a candy dish which she will not allow anyone to use for anything but storing candy. The price a mere $90. (laughs) And in a sentence I can't believe I'm saying, she will die of a robot seal-related heart attack in season 23 episode 4, Replaceable You, one of the statistically few episodes of The Simpsons that I haven't actually seen. Okay. It's also the first in-show appearance of... Bartman. Mm. Which is odd, since do the Bartman had come and gone at this stage. But Bartman is the superhero alter-ego of Bart Simpson, which in canon means absolutely nothing. Yep. It's just Bart in a costume. However, in Simpsons comics, video games, and non canon tales of all sorts, Bartman has a decent amount of presence. Mm. So, firstly, there is a segment in a non canon anthology episode, that being season 18, episode 11, Revenge is a Dish Best Served Three Times, called Bartman Begins, which, to the surprise of no one, tells an origin story for Bartman that is remarkably similar to the then contemporary film Batman Begins with Homer playing the Thomas Wayne role, and asking Bart to avenge his death in a flamboyant, impractical fashion. Which Bart duly does. And of course, all-purpose criminal Snake Jailbird fills in for Jack Napier as the Wayne's killer. Mind you, that's me mixing up two generations of Batman films, and I've given up trying to unpick all that, so moving on. In video games, Bartman is often available as a power-up or an alt-mode for Bart, with appearances apparently including December 1991's Bart vs the World, and 1992's Bart meets Radioactive Man. Mm. Basically, but all the early Simpsons games were garbage. They except were. for that arcade game that Konami did.
0: Yes, there's the Konami arcade game, which is great. Everything else, Bart vs. The World, Bart vs. The Space Mutants, Virtual Bart, they are all dump. Absolutely.
1: Uh, and Bongo Comics published a six-issue Bartman series between December 1993 and July 1995. So there we go. And finally, and I promise you this is the final one. Perhaps, obviously, now I think about it, this is the first appearance of Radioactive Man and Fallout Boy. Mm. Sort of, anyway. The comic that Bart finds in The Fancy School in Season 1, Episode 2, Bart the Genius, is a Radioactive Man comic. But the colouring is very different, and it's a blink and you'll miss it appearance, regardless. Debuting in Radioactive Man 1 although he's seen to debut in Interesting Stories number 27 in season 22 episode 10 moms I'd Like to Forget which I assume is a reference to Spider-Man's first appearance in Amazing Fantasy number 14. He has a Hulk-like origin story but Superman-esque powers. Essentially he does superhero stuff much like Mrs. Glick does old lady stuff. His young ward Fallout boy is Robin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's Nothing to add to that. He's just Robin. Um, Radioactive Man was the subject of a live-action serial where he was played by the unfortunate Dirk Richter, whose life ended in some very suspicious circumstances, and Fallout Boy was played by Buddy Hodges. When we see a flashback to it, it's very much modelled on the 60s Batman series, with the campy action, dancing and written sound effects. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the tightest focus on these characters comes in Season 7, Episode 2, Radioactive Man, which concerns the filming, or perhaps flimming, of a live-action movie of the franchise in Springfield, with Radier Wolf-Castle and Milhouse Van Houten in the starring roles, and Krusty the Clown in seemingly every other role, except the horses, which are played by a bunch of cats taped together. <laughs> so, did you know? Get ready for this one. Remember back in episode 15, when I mentioned how David M. Stern's brother was in an upcoming episode? And remember how there's a Wonder Years-style freeze-frame and a line from an actor playing an adult version of Bart in this one? Ah, yes. Daniel Stern, baby. Daniel Stern. Welcome to the payoff. (laughs) Nice. In the Wonder Years, he did the voice of an adult version of the show's protagonist, Kevin Arnold, and that's exactly what he's doing for Bart here. And I've got a bonus Daniel Stern crossover fact as well. He was featured in the movie City Slickers, released on June 7th, 1991, a mere month after this episode aired, which also starred our new Bessie mate, Yeardley Smith. Eee. The Birds' version of Turn, Turn, Turn is briefly featured in that Wonder Years part, and we'll hear that again when Kent Brockman rides the carousel on Season 9, Episode 21, Girly Edition. And finally, in a There's Lots of Old Film References in This One treble, the whole setup of the growing paranoia between friends sharing a valuable object echoes the 1948 Humphrey Bogart film The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. Bart's Painful Running with Iodine is based on a scene from the 1939 Clark Gable film Gone with the Wind. Ah. And Martin's quote that this is the stuff that dreams are made of is lifted from the 1941 Humphrey Bogart film The Maltese Falcon.
0: There you go. And from the Maltese Falcon. To Zenu. Yes, right, so I'm going to be talking about Scientology. So I'm very much in my comfort zone here because it's very much a skeptic subject, Scientology. Is it a cult or is it a religion? Well, I'm going to be going over the history of Scientology, its core beliefs, and its major controversies. So a cult, a religion, or something more sinister, I'll leave you to decide. But it's a cult. It's a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, Scientology bears no resemblance to any other religion. And it isn't a branch of anything. It's very much its own standalone thing. And it's nothing to do with Christian science, which is an offshoot of Christianity, which has very little to do with science. And before I begin, a word of warning. You will be confused. Not much in Scientology makes sense. Things are asked backwards, carts come before horses. With that proviso, let's look at the origins. The beginnings of Scientology come exclusively from one man, L. Ron Hubbard. In case you're wondering, the L stands for Lafayette, as in General Lafayette, the French aristocrat who commanded American troops in the American Revolutionary War.
1: I can see why he went with L.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Hubbard was born in Nebraska in 1911, and he was a writer of pulp fiction, especially science fiction, writing over 250 books in his career. He was also from a military family. In 1938 he apparently had a near-death experience during a dentist's appointment when he reacted badly to a drug he was given. This inspired him to write a manuscript called Excalibur which contained what Scientologists now call the one command, that is the command to survive. and He would revisit this about 10 years later. And so during the Second World War Hubbard joined the US Navy He had an awkward relationship with the top brass, not being recommended for certain duties, including intelligence gathering. However, in 1943, he was given command of a submarine chaser, the USS PC-815. Just five hours into its maiden voyage, Hubbard believed that he had spotted a German submarine and attempted to engage it for 68 hours, before being ordered to return to shore. An investigation by the US Navy concluded that there was no sub in the area, and Hubbard had mistaken it for known magnetic deposits. However, Scientologists today contend that Hubbard was so brilliant that he totally destroyed the German submarine without leaving any trace of it. He was that good. Shortly afterwards, Hubbard took his ship to what he thought were uninhabited islands and got some gunnery practice in by firing on them. Trouble was, the islands were not uninhabited, but in fact were the Coronado Islands, which were part of Mexico. And Mexico was allied to the US in the Second World War, and they didn't take too kindly to a supposedly friendly ship firing on their territory. Hubbard was relieved of his command. Shortly afterwards, he complained of all kinds of health problems, including ulcers, malaria and back pains. He was transferred to a military hospital where he would spend the next three months. After that, he was posted to the USS Algol. After this, Hubbard reported feeling ill again and had another stint in hospital, requesting but not receiving psychiatric care. After the war was over, the Navy decided that Hubbard was fit to serve and he was placed on inactive duty. After the war, Hubbard got involved with a chap called John Whiteside Parsons, who was both a leading rocket scientist at Caltech and an occultist who followed the English magician Alastair Crowley. While there, Hubbard divorced his first wife, married Parson's daughter, and got involved with all sorts of weird sex rituals. Hubbard wrote a series of letters to himself that he called the Affirmations, which were essentially a series of statements made to himself about his troubled life and health problems. Taking all this together, Hubbard came up with the idea of Dianetics, releasing a best-selling book about it in 1950. So I'll just give a brief overview of Dianetics here. Essentially, it's a pseudoscientific self-help manual. Dianetics postulates that you have two minds, the analytical mind and the reactive mind. The analytical mind is what you use every day, writing a shopping list or recording a podcast. The reactive mind is more akin to a mix of long-term memory and reflex actions. Scientologists will use an example such as this. Say when you were a child, you ate some broccoli or any damn vegetable, but had gone off and it made you sick. That memory would stay in your reactive mind So whenever you encounter broccoli as an adult, your reactive mind would instinctively tell you to avoid it. These bad memories, called engrams, are, according to Dianetics, the source of all our woes, even contributing to physical ailments and ultimately death. The intent of Dianetics is to retrieve the engrams from the reactive mind, confront them, and deal with them in a process called auditing. Once a person's engrams are removed, that person is said to be clear. Soon after publication, the American Psychiatric Association spoke out against Dianetics, encouraging its members not to practice it. This turned Hubbard against psychiatry, and Scientologists view psychiatrists as bad to this day, even blaming them for starting the Holocaust.
1: See I was, I was with that for a little while, it sounded a little bit like that kind of monkey-brain Thing you sometimes
0: hear people talking about Yeah, you hear about monkey brains and lizard brains. I don't think it's based on that though. No, no. So is this a part of Scientology? What ah, well, ahead of that, yeah, well well we'll get to that. So Dianetics became popular in nineteen fifty with Hubbard's book selling thousands of copies. Hubbard trained hundreds of auditors and money started pouring into his Dianetics Foundation, which saw punters paying hundreds of dollars per auditing session. However, in its early history, dialectics turned out to be a bit of a fad and one disastrous demonstration in 1951 almost nipped it in the bud. In front of an audience of 6,000 Hubbard introduced a woman going by the name of Sonia Bianca. He claimed that she was the world's first clear and she had complete control of her mind and could recall every aspect of her life. When audience members put this to the test, she kept failing to answer simple questions about her past. She couldn't even remember the colour of Hubbard's tie. And he turned around and went, I'm not wearing a tie at all. (laughs) So audience members started to walk out in droves and Hubbard was thoroughly embarrassed. The Dianetics centres that Hubbard had founded ran up huge debts and were closed. In addition to this, Hubbard started having an affair with his PR assistant and his wife Sarah started her own affair with the Dianetics auditor, Miles Hollister. Hubbard attempted to denounce his wife and and Hollister to the FBI as communist infiltrators, but they didn't take him seriously. Sarah sought advice from a psychiatrist to get Hubbard institutionalized, and Hubbard then responded by kidnapping Sarah and their one-year-old daughter, Alexis, taking them to California, where he hoped to find a doctor that would declare Sarah insane. When this failed, he took Alexis to Cuba. Sarah filed for divorce, claiming that Hubbard was abusive and tried to coerce her into committing suicide. The divorce was finalised, and Sarah won custody of Alexis, but as part of the deal, she had to recant her claims and state that Hubbard was a brilliant man. As for Dianetics, it was saved by an investment from the millionaire Don Purcell, who bought the copyrights to Dianetics. However, just a year later, things descended into chaos, with Purcell falling out with Hubbard and filing for bankruptcy. Hubbard opened a college, married a young staff member by the name of Mary Sue Whip and closed the college six weeks after it opened. They moved to Phoenix, Arizona, to establish their new religion, Scientology. And this is one of the things about Scientology as a religion that's arse backwards. The practice of Dianetics came first, and the religion is based on it.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So while in Phoenix, Hubbard taught Dianetics, which while many regard it as a pseudoscience, it doesn't involve the supernatural... And he developed that into Scientology, which does make otherworldly claims. He developed the concept of the Phaeton, which is kind of analogous to the soul. The rough idea is that the body is just an inanimate vessel, and what's really in control is a thetan. So when someone dies, the thetan leaves them and sort of just buzzes around. When a baby's born, a thetan attaches itself to it, complete with its engrams from its past lives. So this idea took Scientology firmly into the realm of the supernatural, as the doctrines now postulate that for a Thetan to be clear, all its engrams need to be addressed, even though they may have happened billions of years ago. So to fully clear someone of their engrams, you've got to go back through billions of years of the Thetan's history. And that's going to take quite a lot of time and money, I would assume. Exactly, exactly. So this is where it becomes supernatural, because it's making claims about reincarnation, essentially. And there are exponentially more thetans on the planet than people, so there's always a thetan around when a new life emerges. Thetans are immortal and therefore have been around for billions of years. In fact, there's a little bit in Bart Sells' Soul where Lisa says, for $5, Minel House could only for a billion years. Which kind of makes you think. And Hubbard also developed the concept of the electropsychometer or E-meter. It's a fairly crude device that responds to small changes in electrodermal activity. The person being audited, also known as the preclear, holds an electrode in each hand and a very small voltage is applied. The auditor can then see changes in resistance, and these changes are supposed to give the auditor clues to find the preclear's engrams. And Scientology started off small at first, with Hubbard running a 70-hour lecture course attended by just 38 people. In 1953, Hubbard became Dr. Hubbard, having obtained a doctorate from Sequoia University, an unaccredited diploma mill. Shortly afterwards, on December 18th, 1953, Hubbard officially incorporated the Church of Scientology in Camden, New Jersey, and Scientology legally became a religion in the USA. Throughout the 50s, Scientology grew steadily and Hubbard once again started raking in the money. With it, he bought St. Hill Manor, an 18th century country house in Sussex. He moved there in 1959, making it his permanent residence and a Scientology training centre. Later, it became home of the Guardian's Office, a special branch which had the responsibility of protecting Scientology. The 60s saw Hubbard continue to develop the theology behind Scientology. In 1965, he published The Bridge to Freedom, which describes how Scientologists can progress spiritually. The book included the chart The Bridge to Total Freedom, which introduced the concept of the operating phaeton, or OT. The idea is that once someone is clear and that the reactive mind is free from all engrams, the thetan is in its true form. With the right training, they are free to progress up the numerous operating thetans or OT, levels and realise their true potential. In 1967, Hubbard founded the Sea Organization. Initially intended to be Scientology's offshore base, Hubbard purchased three ships, the Diana, the Athens and the Apollo. The hardcore of Scientology are trained on the Sea Org, including the current leader, David Miscavige, The running of the ships was said to be modelled on Scientology law, more on that later, and Hubbard's own military career, with a belief that governments around the world were about to collapse. The Sea Org could then take over what was left. Now, of course, it had nothing to do with avoiding government organisations like the IRS by being offshore, although as far as I'm aware, they didn't organise monkey knife fights. In 1975, Hubbard sold all the ships and moved the Sea Org to bases inland while retaining the naval-inspired military customs and outfits. Which is really weird.
1: Yeah. So, Were they still called the Sea Org?
0: Yes. So, so they're still called the Sea Org. They still do all the military naval stuff. But they're now in buildings inland. Um, I mean, fair dues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Sea Org members sign a billion-year contract when they join pledging their loyalty for their current and future lives. I don't know how they're supposed to work out where the Thetan has gone when they die, but apparently they can.
1: That must have been some kind of a scam where they thought at some stage they were going to be able to convince somebody they'd already signed the contract.
0: Hmm. yeah, it's an interesting one. So in 1987, the Sea Org purchased a cruise ship and renamed it the Free Winds. The higher levels of operating featon can only be obtained on the free winds, and it plays host to their annual maiden voyage celebrations. The Sea Org has come in for a huge amount of criticism, as members are controlled, put under constant surveillance and have no free time – allegedly. Women have been pressurised to have abortions to remain members, as you can't be in the Sea Org if you have young children. If you leave, they get you to pay a freeloader's charge where they bill you for your food, lodgings, and any other expenses they believe you have incurred. The Sea Org would eventually become the most important organisation in Scientology, superseding the Guardian's office. But the Guardian's office were behind one of the most controversial episodes in Scientology's history, Operation Snow White. This was an attempt to infiltrate the offices of the IRS, which ended up utilising up to 5,000 people. Documents were stolen, meeting rooms bugged, and wires tapped. In August 1978, 11 members of the church, including L. Ron Hubbard's then wife, Mary Sue, were indicted on 28 charges. Hubbard himself was named as an unindicted co-conspirator and was not charged. At the end of the trial, many were found guilty and Mary Sue was sentenced to five years in prison. Hubbard got off scot-free. Of course, Scientology is noted for being popular with certain celebrities, most notably Tom Cruise, John Travolta, and even Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson. This is no coincidence, it's from the early days Scientologists have tried to recruit them through their celebrity centers, the first of which opened in Los Angeles in 1969. The idea is that celebrities give Scientology an air of respectability, and they are effective in recruiting new members. You know, it certainly normalizes something when Tom Cruise is into it. And the current leader, David Miscavige, is head of the Sea Org and therefore head of Scientology. His father, Ron, sent him to see a Scientologist in 1971, And apparently, after one session of auditing, he was cured of his childhood asthma. Ron was so impressed that he moved the family to St. Hill Manor. David grew up in Scientology, becoming an auditor at the age of 12. L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986. According to Scientologists, his body had become a burden, so he left it. And as an operating phaeton, he went off to do other things. In other places and planets, goodness knows what. Miscavige, who started working with Hubbard in 1977 and rose through the ranks, took over. However, before he died, Hubbard ordered that the Scientologist and longtime confident confidant Pat Broker was to be promoted to the new rank of loyal officer, which would have put him in charge. Miscavige claimed the order had been falsified. So what's interesting about Miscavige taking over is that, to use a slightly unpleasant phrase, it's a case of the lunatics taking over the asylum. Because, you know, Hubbard had his mate set up to take it over and Miskovich, who grew up in it went no no it's going to be me so a yeah. bit, bit of the chosen one syndrome
1: perhaps going possibly, on
0: possibly possibly but as the 1980s gave way to the 1990s media scrutiny on Scientology continued on May 6, 1991 three days before Three Men in a Comic Book first aired the New York Times published a damning expose of Scientology entitled The Thriving Cult of Greed and Power in it, investigative journalist Richard Bihar catalogues the controversies that Scientology has faced, focusing on the tragic case of Noah Antrim Lottick, a student who committed suicide after embarking on a Scientology course. His father blames Scientology, calling it a school for psychopaths. The Scientologists responded by suing publications all over the world to stop it being republished. They also took out lavish full-colour adverts and other magazines to refute the claims of the article. They put forward their own explanation for it, which was that Richard Bihar was in the pocket of Big Pharma. And the company Eli Lilly had recently launched the antidepressant Prozac, and Scientologists were vehemently opposed to it. Remember, depression can be cured by auditing.
1: Obviously. Yes. Just a uh, an Idiot anecdote for you. Uh, it was a long time before I saw Big Pharma written down, and I thought <laughs> he was referring to
0: farmers. Oh, no. Big Pharma. All right, well, you never really got the. I mean, that'd be scary. Big enough one of them, you know, (laughs) imagine the size of the pitchfork. Absolutely. So, the 90s brought a new challenge for Scientology the internet. One of the things that makes Scientology very different from other religions is that a lot of its texts are closely guarded secrets. They're guarded by lawyers, copyright law, all that sort of stuff. So, a Scientologist will happily give you a copy of Dianetics or any, if you like, teaser material, sort of gateway stuff, that they won't just give you a lot of the story. You have to pay to go up the OT levels for that. They guarded their secrets with high-priced lawyers, but with the advent of the internet, all their secrets were leaked. And one such secret is what they call the Wall of Fire. According to the story, billions of years ago, there was a dictator called Xenu. He corruptly ruled the Galactic Federation He imprisoned billions of people and flew them to the planet Tigiak, where they were put in volcanoes and killed with hydrogen bombs. Now, according to Scientology law, Tigiak is Earth, and the foetans of the people killed still inhabit it, traumatized by their experiences. These experiences cause the engrams of past lives, and no one can be clear until these engrams are audited. So this is how Scientology goes from being the practice of Dianetics to the belief into why you need Dianetics in the first place. OK. So that's the difference between the practice of Dianetics and the religion of Scientology. Now,
1: have I got this mixed up, or was the L. Ron Hubbard written
0: flop John Travolta film, Battlefield Earth, about that incident... I very much doubt it would have been. I know, I know what you're talking about. I think L. Ron Hubbard went back to science fiction writing not that long before he died. Okay. Either because he wanted to make a bit of money or he was bored or whatever. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't tell the story of Xenu. They, they guard that pretty tightly.
1: Right, right.
0: So in order to learn the story of Xenu through the Church of Scientology, you would have to undergo years of auditing at the cost of thousands and thousands of dollars. So i have saved you a fair bit of cash by telling you about it here. But seeing as they can't try and hide it anymore, what they do is deny it. So if you ask a Scientologist who is at a certain level, what about Xenu?" They'll just go, don't know what you're talking about. Sounds ridiculous. Don't believe in anything like that. Um, yeah, because I'll talk about it in, in a minute, but John Sweeney did some investigative journalism into Scientology and he asked a bunch of actors about Xenu. But of course, who's going to be best placed to deny something? Actors, eh? So, the mid-90s saw the church embroiled in a fresh controversy over the case of Lisa McPherson. She was a young adherent to Scientology, moving to Florida from Texas in 1994. On December 5, 1995, McPherson died while under the care of the church. Initially, the state decided that McPherson had died of negligent homicide and they brought charges against the church. However, the church brought forward their own evidence and the state changed their mind, deciding that her death was an accident. And the church later settled a civilian claim with her family. Then in the noughties, Scientologists' most famous incident, certainly in this country, was a panorama investigation by the journalist John Sweeney. He was tasked with making a documentary on the church... And as such, he became what they call fair game. As he went to interview former members, he was followed and put under surveillance. The Scientology members wound him up by repeatedly calling him a bigot and interrupting him. During a heated confrontation with the Scientology spokesman Tommy Davis, he completely lost it and exploded. That clip became pretty much the only thing the documentary was known for, which is exactly what the Church of Scientology wanted. Because they're very clever in that PR sense. Because they knew that if they keep pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, when he explodes...
1: You are
0: not bad at the beginning of the interview! Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, when that documentary went out, that's all anyone cared about. No one cared about people being in the Sea Org, or coerced, or cut off from their families, or anything like that. They only cared about John Sweeney shouting. So well done there.
1: Makes you wonder why they actually left that bit in the documentary.
0: To get people to watch it, I guess. Ugh. Yeah. So anyway, in the last few years, there have been a few notable defections from the church, including from David Miscavige's father, Ron, who in 2016 released his autobiography, Ruthless, about his son. Ron was put under surveillance, but ultimately the book had little effect. There was a bit of the fanfare, over. Oh, the... Father of the leader of Scientology has quit and bought this book out. Meh. Don't Mm. care. I thought that
1: would have been. I'd never heard of that.
0: No, no. Well, you see, since 1991, when that New York Times article was first published, Scientology has continued to the present day without any major changes or challenges, really. So as of 2019, David Miscavige is still in charge and the church isn't facing any major battles. So, yeah, sorry to not end on a positive note again.
1: Yeah, well, as as often happens with these stories, I fear. but, um, You know, uh, important to know, and as you may have noted uh, more recently, I've been trying to sort of uh, process while Tom's been telling me the story. You know, whether there's an episode of The Simpsons that could possibly relate to this at all. (laughs) I'm having a bit of trouble with this one because you know there's all the stuff he told me about the submarine earlier. Uh, Simpson Tide obviously has a lot about that. It's The Joy of Sect.
0: Yes. It's season
1: is. 9, episode 13, The Joy of Sect with the leader.
0: hmm.
1: Na 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 leader. Yeah.
0: Which, which I find very, very interesting that Nancy Cartwright was okay with that being made. Because.
1: Was, was it pre her joining?
0: Could it have been? No, I don't think so. And because the. Article from 1991 says that Nancy Cartwright is a Scientologist. Oh right. wow, yeah, that so was it's way, after. way before, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so yeah, with the joy of sect, I don't know, maybe, maybe she thought that it wasn't having a dig at Scientology because there are other sort of cult type things with charismatic leaders. Yeah, I think it was
1: general enough that it would have been difficult to say it was. Definitely about Scientology. Yeah, But yeah. If, if we are going with uh, the opinion, and it is just an opinion, and it may mm-hmm. well just be mine, that Scientology is a cult, mm-hmm. then that's when you can project Scientology onto that episode. Unlike the episodes of South Park that blatantly said, this is Scientology, and it's a load of rubbish. Yes,
0: yes. And them saying that is what made Isaac Hayes, uh, Chef, who's another Scientologist, that got him to quit.
1: I realised the other day that there has now been more South Park without Chef than there was with Chef, to the extent that I often forget the Chef was ever in South Park. Mm -hmm. But at first, he was the main thing about South Park. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, yeah, I've got a few ideas about how Scientology works and, 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 and how they recruit people and keep them there. So, first of all, you've got your appeal to authority. You see people like Tom Cruise doing it. One of the things about Scientology is that it's a religion of the self. You're not expected to worship anything else. The whole point of Scientology is to improve your own mind. So people who are into that, that would they would find it very appealing. A lot of people, when they come to Scientology, they do have, you know, troubled backgrounds. They want to think, well, how can I be better? And Scientology has that promise. But then you have Another logical fallacy, which is the sunk cost fallacy, which is this idea that if you spend a lot of money on something, you're not going to want to say, I've wasted my money, this is a load of rubbish. And Scientologists will, will pay thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to climb up the bridge to total freedom, to get to that operating feet and level. So when they say, OK, you've reached this level, so now we can tell you've the Wall of Fire. You're now prepared for it. There was this guy called Zenu. He lived billions of years ago, and he killed people. And you know, pe- people aren't going to go, "What? What a load of rubbish!" They're going to go, "Wow, this is the thing that I've spent all this money on. Wow, this is brilliant." So you got that. And there's also this idea of the illusion of control, because with Scientology, you sort of become the master of your own mind, the master of your own destiny. I think that would be quite appealing to people.
1: I agree. Yeah, especially
0: in modern days, it's less of a
1: less of a community and more of a sort of inward-looking lifestyle that I think we have these days. Oh, mm-hmm. well, that was that was quite a deep thing for me to say. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, so I, I can quite see how that works. Yes. Um, so, where is my nearest
0: auditing centre? Um, there's definitely a branch of Scientology in Manchester. I'm tempted to go now, actually, because one of the things they offer you is a free stress test. So you get to have a go with an e-meter.
1: Yeah, that would be nice. I'd like to think we were relatively uh, immune to their charms. Uh... You'd hope,
0: you'd hope, but everyone is fallible. True, true. And they only have to get a few people in at a time. Um, Because one of the things about the article, The Thriving Cult of Greed and Power... Is that it gives several cases of people who have given a lot of money to the church, including people who sell their houses, to to go with the auditing. It's not worth the risk, really, is it? No. No, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'll give it a go. And if he does, we'll have
1: a very special episode uh, <laughs> around, his, uh, around yeah. his experiences and introducing his replacement. Yeah.
0: And if this episode suddenly disappears from the website, you'll know why. How's he do?
1: And on that hydrogen bombshell, we'll, uh, <laughs> nice. we'll close. Uh, don't forget you can find us at org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospectacus.org and check out the 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas, as this will be our last episode before the festivities.
0: It will indeed. Ho, ho, ho. Bye, everyone. See ya.